This episode is sponsored by Lloyds Banking Group, serving Britain's communities and households for more than 250 years. Hello and welcome to Women Balls, where I, Katie, will speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today grew up during the Troubles in a town close to the Irish border. Her experience of conflict began when she was nine and witnessed the IRA's attempt to kill her father. In 1988, she survived another attack by the IRA when a bomb was planted under her school bus. Her political journey began at Queen's University in Belfast, where she studied law. First, she joined the Unionist Association, part of the Ulster Unionist Party. Weeks after her election to the Assembly in 2003, my guest quit that party in opposition to the Good Friday Agreement and joined the Democratic Unionist Party. Her rise through the ranks was rapid and she soon became the leader of the DUP. Following the UK's 2017 general election, my guest became one of the biggest names in British politics after joining in coalition with Theresa May's Conservative government. She says, for me, the decision to enter politics was never about party or a person. It was about speaking up for the voiceless and building a Northern Ireland which could prosper and be at peace in the United Kingdom. My guest today is Arlene Foster. Arlene, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We have been trying to get you on for years. <laughs> so I'm delighted. Here I am. Here <laughs> exactly. I am. And you're here in person, so I'm delighted it has finally come together. Now, to begin with on this podcast, we always ask guests, was there a happy childhood? How would you describe yours? Um, your experience of the Troubles began early. It did, but I have to say I did have a very happy childhood. I was born in Enniskillen and I lived in a very rural part of County Fermanagh. My father was a police officer but also a part-time farmer so we lived on a, on a small farm and so very happy childhood because my birthday was in July so it was during the haymaking time and you know all of that but when I was eight and a half the IRA came to murder my father and he was outside about half past nine at night they opened up on him and thankfully he survived he came crawling into the house. I have a very clear recollection of that, even though I was only eight at the time. And so that was a a big disruption to my childhood, as you can imagine, because after that, he was advised that it wasn't really safe for us to live there because we only lived about three miles from the border with the Irish Republic. And obviously, after he was attacked, the IRA escaped across the border. So it could happen again. So he was advised to move and take the family away from our... I I often say, looking back now, it was quite idyllic, you know, my childhood um, uh, up until the age of eight because it was so free and lovely. So we moved, and we moved to uh, Lissonski, which was further away from the border, and Daddy continued to work as a, a police officer. So, yes, a happy childhood, but really disrupted by what happened to my father in 1979. And after that, were you much more aware of safety? Was it something that struck you more going about your day-to-day life? No, not really, actually, because despite the fact that the troubles were continuing in the 1980s, I used to, you know, walk to Badminton. We had a very free and easy life. We were in the town then, of course, which was a bit of a change, particularly for my grandmother who lived with us, and she found it very difficult. But no, not in regards to safety. Uh, probably our, our, my parents were worried sick about us all, but we. Uh, but I have to say they allowed us to have a very normal childhood, which I'm really very thankful for. Now, I want to talk about uh, your time at school and yeah. being a history teacher, but I suppose talking about safety, I mean, there was an incident on 
your school bus. Yes. Can you talk listeners through what happened? Yes. So when I was in lower sixth, so I was in my first year of my A-levels, if you like, uh, in June, I was going to school. The bus driver was a part-time Ulster Defence Regiment soldier. And he, they obviously, he had been targeted by the IRA and they put a, a bomb under the bus so that when he opened up the bus in the morning it would go off but it didn't go off and instead he picked up a number of school children including myself and then the bomb exploded about I would say two miles into our journey so we were at the bottom of the town as I call it just about to leave Listen Ski when the bomb went off and pretty horrific incident the girl that was sitting beside me was very seriously injured and I, I felt a lot of guilt about that because she and I used to argue about who was going to sit at the window and who was going to sit at the aisle because if you got sitting at the window, you could fall asleep. <laughs> so it was, I was sitting at the window and she was sitting at the aisle and, and the blast came down the bus and really injured her very, very badly. So that, of course, had an impact on me as well. I was 17 at the time, so it was a, a pretty horrific incident as well. And afterwards, I think you gave an interview when the BBC were covering it. with my lovely permed hair. It was the 80s after all. (laughs) Am I right to say you called for both sides to turn against the men of violence? Yes, that's right. So do you think your childhood meant that you, I don't know if you describe it as being political, but you had to form, I suppose, views of, you know, like that quite early on? The thing is, I come from a family that's not political at all. And politics wasn't really discussed in the house. Obviously, we watched the news and after my father was shot, it became a real... Obviously, you were very conscious of the fact that the IRA were there and were murdering police officers in particular. And my father lost a lot of his colleagues. And so there, there was that consciousness after that. People often ask me, do you think you got into politics because of what happened to you and what happened to your father? I can't answer that because I didn't live the other life where my father wasn't shot and and, and I wasn't blown up. So I always had an interest then in current affairs and and history and things like that. So I really got involved in politics when I went up to Queen's University in Belfast. Now you're first in your family to go to university and you said that a history teacher you had had a big impact on you. Was that prior to getting there? Was that that at school? Yeah, no, at school, Miss Hill was a fabulous history teacher and she I just found her an inspiring lady I, I think we all have those teachers who we look back and think she made a real impact or he made a real impact on what we did and I think she really did she got me interested in history got me interested in looking at reliable sources of information as opposed to unreliable sources of information so yeah Miss Hill certainly was I went to an all-girls school which has since uh, amalgamated with the all-boys school in the town. But at the time, it was very much the Collegiate Grammar School for girls. Um, Why did you go for law as your degree choice? Yeah, well, you know, uh, when I was making my choices for university, I put law down first. Probably didn't really believe that I would get the grades to do law and had history second. I thought I would probably be studying history at at university, but I did get the grades for for law. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. My time at Queen's was, again, a difficult time in terms of what was happening in Northern Ireland. 1989 to 93, I did my undergraduate degree. And it was a tough time to be standing up as a unionist in Queen's Student Union because it was rapidly Republican at that time. But I think it 
it toughened me up and uh, certainly it was a good nursery for what was to come later on. And you, you weren't just standing up, you were the chair of the yes, I was, yeah. Association. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was in my final year and I think I was the second female to hold that role because there had been a lady in the early 80s, I think, had been the first female chair. So, yeah, I enjoyed it. So when did you decide to take the plunge and actually go for a political career? Because you were elected as a UP Assembly member for mm. your home constituency. Yeah. So what what made you decide to do that? Well, up until then, I had been... I had been involved in the administration of the Ulster Unionist Party. I had been on their officer board. I was... the I, I went on to the officer board in... 1995, the year I got married actually, I was just 25 and I was the youngest on the board. And actually in terms of females in the Austrian Party, there weren't very few. There, there were very few who stepped forward and wanted to be involved at a higher level. Plenty of females involved at the lower levels of the party, but very few wanting to go further and progress. So it was actually Lord Kilclooney now, he was John Taylor then, who said, I'm going to propose you, and that's goodness. And he did, and I often say to women, you know, it's not only other women that you need to get to support you, it's to have men supporting you as well, you know, because that is really important. And John was one of those people who proposed me and obviously thought he saw something there, so... uh, I always remember that. So, yes, I, I was involved in the officer board of the Ulster Unionist Party. I was actually the election agent in the 1996 forum elections for the whole of Northern Ireland. So, again, I was quite young to be doing that sort of thing. And then, of course, in 1998, the Belfast Agreement came and there was a huge split within the Ulster Unionist Party about whether we should support it or not. So there was a lot of activity, despite the fact that I wasn't in public uh, I wasn't a public representative I was doing quite a lot of media off the back of that as an officer of the party at the time so you're elected yes um, and then you moved to the DUP yes. not too soon after what was the driving force for that well as I say the, the party the Ulster Union's party was very split at that time Jeffrey Donaldson who's now the leader of the DUP myself and others were finding it increasingly difficult to stay within the Austrian Party. And frankly, the leadership of that time were just not listening to the concerns of people on the ground about the fact that the Belfast Agreement was being implemented in a way which was detrimental to the Union and to many people within Northern Ireland. And we decided it was time to move um, because if we cared about the Union, we weren't going to be able to do that in the vehicle of the Austrian Party anymore um, and we needed to change. What would you say is the driving force behind your unionism? Well, country first always, not party first. And I think that's the important piece because it is about wanting to ensure that Northern Ireland remains within the United Kingdom because, of course, it's beneficial for all of our citizens because it's the best place to be economically, uh, from a healthcare point of view, from a welfare point of view, from an educational point of view. And actually, this is something uh, I'm looking at now that I'm out of party politics because I think there's a lot of conversation from Republicans about a United Ireland being inevitable. It's not And we need to disrupt that and say it's not inevitable. And the reason it's not inevitable is because the union is good for all of the citizens of Northern Ireland. And here's the reasons why. Because there's a lot of talk from nationalists and Republicans about why United Ireland is coming. Unionists, on the other hand, 
are quite quiet. I think sometimes people think it's so evident that the union is good for Northern Ireland, we don't need to talk about it, but we do need to talk about it and we have to talk about it because if we don't, we'll not disrupt the, the narrative that uh, is growing now that a United Ireland is inevitable because it's not. Now, I suppose, staying I suppose uh, with your career journey yeah, um, yeah. Um, before we move more to, more to that in the Empire the Podcast, I mean, I mean, in 2010, the leader of the DUP temporarily stood aside yeah. and you were the natural person to fill in. And I think during that build up to there, you developed a reputation as one of the most dependable ministers. When you stepped in as leader briefly, did you think this is something I could start doing uh, more long term one day? Uh, no, not really. I mean, that was the time Peter Robinson, who was the first minister at the time, stepped aside and I... I think it was only for a couple of weeks I, I took over, but he was still there as well, very much. So it was only really a mechanism to try and deal with problems at the time. I was more than happy in the job that I was doing, which was essentially the economy minister for Northern Ireland, which I loved, a job I loved, and I did it for over seven years. So no, not really at that time. I, I was more focused on, on what I was doing. And um, Now, you won the party leadership in 2015. Yeah. Did you have doubts about going for it? Or uh, did you have to have conversations with family members? Yeah. Um, just something, because you've spoken more recently about the pressure, obviously, mm. of frontline politics. And I just wondered if, at the time, you were aware of, you know, that was weighing on your mind when you went for it. Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, I discussed it with my husband yeah. and uh, and the family. Family were a lot younger then. But, you know, these opportunities are, are quite rare when they come along. So you have to decide, are you going to go for it or are you going to step back and, and, and not take the opportunity? So I did. I stepped forward. I don't regret doing it. But it is a complete change to your life and your way of life when you become party leader uh, and first minister. It just goes with the territory. Now, obviously, on this podcast, we cannot we have to skip forward in chunks of time. <laughs> so I'm sure we're doing great disservice to to patches, but I think for listeners, obviously, the point where, for example, I think the DP website crashed um, the day after the 2017 yeah. general election, or at least in the days after, because there was such a surge of interest, and DP became the most searched term on Google. Yeah, and that was, as uh, listeners will know, the 2017 general election where yeah. Theresa May lost her majority, and in the end, a confidence supply agreement was brokered with yourself as leader of the DUP. At what point when that result starts to come through, it was a decent result for your party, mm. do you start to think this could be coming from the UK government? Did they get in touch with you or yeah. could you see the numbers coming through an election night and, and perhaps do the math? Well, I was in a hotel in Belfast because I wanted to be close to some of the Belfast counts and I'd been going around the country that day, obviously visiting various counties because I wasn't running myself. I wasn't running for Westminster. I was at the time an MLA. So I'd been around the place and then went into the hotel to rest for a while, turned on the TV, seen the exit poll and went, oh my goodness, there's a possibility of a hung parliament here. And then when our results started to come through and our results were very strong, I think it was the best results ever for the Democratic Unionist Party in terms of percentage poll, and we had 10 seats. So very early, I think it was about four or five o'clock in the morning, I got a call from Theresa May and she said she wanted to speak with me and blah de blah and the rest is history. <laughs> and I remember the days after that result because I think it obviously... 
that resulted taking a lot of people by surprise of Westminster sure, and Theresa yeah. May's. And then before we know it, there's talks about the DUP and the Tories and it was days of negotiations. Days, weeks. <laughs> yeah, it went on. Well, you know, I, I was thinking about Gavin Williamson was going and moving around. That's right. It was a bizarre time because, again, it underlined to me that people in England, particularly in London, knew very little about the DUP. Hence the Google crash, and they were trying to find out more about us. And uh, some of the cartoons were, frankly, verging on the racist in terms of who we are and who we were at that time. I did, however, give you an exclusive by a couple of Matt cartoons, which were quite funny at the time. <laughs> you know, the, the, the one with the uh, big Ben with a bowler hat on it. Uh, the DUP insisted, I think, was the line, and another one. But anyway, uh, there was a real lack of understanding about Northern Ireland unionists and again that has driven me now that I've stepped out of local politics to really try and have more of a conversation here on the mainland and in Northern Ireland about unionism and and to try and have more of a conversation around it. Yeah a greater understanding because looking at I mean at the time I wondered how you found that media coverage because clearly you're used to frontline politics, mm. but I imagine it's nothing like when all of a sudden yeah. you all seen as a party propping up mm-hmm. the um, yeah. you know the government, and there were lots of headlines at the time looking at DUP's position on things like gay rights. Sure, did you find that? Did you think that coverage was fair? Did you find it was a parody version? I, I wonder what you thought. No, no, it wasn't fair. It was parody version. Most of the things that were said. But look, you just have to take that and, and move on. That wasn't the important point at the time. The important point was for us to try, A, to get a good deal for Northern Ireland out of the Confidence and Supply Agreement, and B, then to be involved in very difficult Brexit negotiations and frankly we weren't engaged in the way that we should have been in those Brexit negotiations uh, it was almost not a, brought in enough no, brought yeah. in enough and rather presented with fait accompli at the time you know and here's what we have agreed sort of thing instead of allowing us to be part of the negotiations and I fundamentally believe Katie if that had been the case we would have seen the the pitfalls that we're now dealing with and we could have dealt with those yeah because on that I was going to say the DUP was pro-Brexit yeah pro yeah you know a deal, ideally, but if you, if yeah. that doesn't work, you can go no deal. I think you've perhaps alluded to it there, but clearly the Irish border was always going to be yeah. an, something that had to be negotiated carefully. I wonder, at what point did you start to think, actually, was there, was there a moment when you started to think, it's all very well Theresa May and her government saying they're listening to me, but I don't feel as though they are. Was there a point when you started to think yeah. you were not being involved enough? December 2017, I think, was the point yeah. when uh, she went to Brussels and I had to ring her and, and say, we're not we're not agreeing with us. In my notes, yeah. I have, I've read G- Gavin Barwell's memoir recently. Yeah. And he, because I was going to ask you, he's got in it December 2017. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. perhaps I might read you what he said about it and then right, get your okay. version of it. Okay. That's okay. So Gavin Barwell just says it was one of the worst days in his two years as Theresa May's most senior advisor. And this is a meeting between Theresa May and Juncker, which is supposed to solve the problem of the UK-Ireland border and allow the next phase of the Brexit talks to begin. It ends in failure. He says, after the EU proposes a change to the draft test in Northern Ireland, Arlene Foster and the DUP object, Tory MPs become spooked. Mm. And he goes on to say that, you know, this is what he hopes. We were now in a deep hole and says the point where it ultimately proved fundamental to her inability to secure parliamentary support for her plans. How was that day for you? (laughs) Well, I mean, we were blindsided, 
frankly. And it then started, we were in Stormont at the time, and it started to filter through what she was going to sign up to. You remember at the time they had agreed to this, and this was a mistake too, a sort of a staging approach to the negotiations. And so they had to sort the border out first. And, you know, there were ways to deal with the issue of the border. The border is there in reality. We have a currency border, a jurisdictional border, a VAT border. It's there. And it's dealt with on a day-by-day basis. There were alternative arrangements put forward. People said it could be dealt with with technology. They were all dismissed as unicorn thinking because Teresa had it in her mind that I cannot have any infrastructure on the border. And she publicly said that. Because if I do, then I'm going to start the troubles again and and this, that and the other. And she had a fundamental misunderstanding of the Belfast Agreement and what it meant. And she believed that it meant no borders on the island of Ireland. But there is a border on the island of Ireland. The whole point of the Belfast Agreement is constitutionally Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom and will remain so until people in Northern Ireland decide otherwise. So what she did was actually treat Northern Ireland differently from the rest of the UK. And therefore, we're now in this big hole as Gordon Barwell says now dealing with the protocol because the protocol didn't just materialise in 2019 the seeds of the protocol are there in December 2017 and David Frost actually has said that recently as well When you say things could have been differently do you think that we know the DUP from that period in time are tough negotiators Mm. and are actually quite happy to keep the other side waiting, I think we saw it with the confidence supply negotiation I just wondered do you, do you think that Theresa May should have held out more? or you know? Well, fundamentally, she didn't have an understanding of part of her own country, which was the problem. And she was listening to, in particular, the Irish government were pushing very hard. Uh, and instead of taking us into her confidence, we were meant to be her partners in a confidence and supply agreement and working with us to find a solution. She didn't. And as a result, we have what we have today. Did you develop much of a personal relationship with her during that time? No, I can't say I did. I can't say I did. I wanted to, but Teresa's not the sort of person that you go down the shops with and have a coffee. You know, she's she's not that sort of a person. And I regret that there wasn't a closer relationship. I think people thought when you have two women leading, you know, there will be that chance of a relationship, but it wasn't there. What about Boris Johnson? <laughs> because yeah, we we know how it ends with Theresa May. She yeah. did not get that deal for you. She, sure. never, she never won your support. And for many Tory MPs, at the, that time at least, mm-hmm. they would say, without the DUP, we're not going to support this. Yeah. Boris Johnson uh, quits his role as foreign secretary. Yeah. Says a lot of the right things, I imagine, yeah. where you're sitting about no compromise. He went to the DUP conference in mm-hmm. 2018. He did indeed. Um, I watched a video before we started recording, actually, where he said, you would never put a border in the Irish Sea. Yeah. At what point did you start to realise his his commitment, his words, are perhaps not, not what they would be in actions? Well, I mean, I think he made very clear commitments to us all, repeated them actually at the Tory conference in October of 2019, and then very soon afterwards came to a deal, which was the protocol. And clearly, and, and I mean, even after that, when we would say, this is, this is going to mean checks between, no, 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 it's not. No, it's not. Yes, it is. <laughs> you know, and... Right up until, actually, the implementation of the protocol in 2021, even the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland was saying there's no border in the Irish Sea. Well, it was clear that there was. 
And then he has now had to accept that that is the case. And we have been left with a protocol which is causing trade diversion, which is causing economic harm to Northern Ireland and which is causing societal harm as well. So there is a clear basis for triggering Article 16, which is the mechanism to call a halt to the protocol and and look at it again. And that was accepted by the UK government in July of last year in their command paper. But I could understand they wanted to negotiate with uh, the European Union after that command paper came out, but there has been nothing since then. So the Prime Minister really does need to, and I can understand when we're talking about issues of national sovereignty with Ukraine and Russia, why he doesn't do it now in terms of our own national sovereignty, which includes Northern Ireland. I want to talk more about the protocol, but just first, I just wondered in the sense that covering Tory conference, the one you mentioned where he was saying those things, and also just speaking to some of your DUP colleagues during that period, it really felt to me as though Boris Johnson was at least pitching himself as a friend of the DUP. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So did you feel personally let down when he did that? Oh, absolutely. I felt personally let down, and he knows that. I mean, I think Boris is a force of nature. He's a very charismatic man. He is uh, someone the country needed at that time to get Brexit done. But unfortunately for us in Northern Ireland, it didn't happen. We didn't get Brexit. And as a result, we now have a situation where if you want to reduce VAT on energy bills, for example, it can't be done because you need the approval of the European Union under the protocol. I mean, that is a fundamental sovereignty issue. And, uh, you know, at a time when we felt that we would have the levers back and we would be able to do things for our own people, we can't do it. Yes, you mentioned Labour's currently calling for VAT to go and the Tories have stayed away from it for various reasons. But clearly, as you point out, I think a point which has not been perhaps noticed as it should be is were you to do that, you can't actually do it in Northern Ireland because it has to be in line with what the Republic is doing. Is that It has to be in line with the European Union. And actually, the Irish Prime Minister in the Doyle this week was saying that he couldn't reduce VAT because of the fact that the European Union has a policy on this. You know, so So things like that. Yeah, a, a clear reminder. Just the final thing I think on that Brexit period is simply... I mentioned Gavin Barwell, Theresa May's chief of staff. Figures like Barwell and others make the argument that Theresa May has been proved right. And actually, the DEP should have compromised because you end up in a worse situation than you would have been under Theresa May's deal. Do you have any regrets about not backing? No, no, I mean, that's simply not true. And Gavin knows it's not true, but he's trying to justify his time in office because under Theresa May's deal, the backstop was there. And are you saying to me that it wouldn't have happened by now in terms of Northern Ireland being treated differently from the rest of the UK? It had the same outcome. It had exactly the same outcome. Uh, The protocol is more of a front stop. (laughs) The backstop, as her deal was around would have treated Northern Ireland differently. So no, I have no regrets at all. What I do regret is that Theresa didn't speak to us and understand, A, what the Belfast Agreement was really about, and B, what would have worked in Northern Ireland and for the Republic of Ireland as well. Because the relationships between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland have really soured as a result of everything that has happened. One of the things I do regret is that Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney must have realised that if they pushed and pushed and pushed that it would have consequences in Northern Ireland and it has and and I think that that is something to be regretted we have not great relationships now between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland on the run-up 
to the time when I was economy minister, we had great relationships and it was a normalised relationship and we were working together and it was, it, was, it was good for both of us. But now we have this standoff and I, I, I deeply regret that. And they should have known that by pushing so hard for the protocol that it would have ended the way it has. Now, you mentioned obviously the problems with Nazarene today as a result mm. of the protocol. And I think we've seen... Even ministers who previously were saying, oh, you know, there's nothing to see here. Yeah. One of the arguments we're hearing now, the government says, you know, it may trigger Article 16. But it's been saying that for a while. Yeah. But there is a sense that I think we've been picking up that following Russia's decision to launch a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, now is not the time to trigger Article 16. <laughs> what, what do you say to that? Well, I mean, you know, now is not the time to trigger Article 16. I've heard that so many times. Uh, on the run-up to the end of last year, November time, we were quite confident that Article 16 was going to be triggered by David Frost. I think he had come to the conclusion that the European Union were not going to move any further and there was a need to do something. Then, of course, there was a bit of a psychodrama about Owen Palaszczuk and Partygate and everything else. So the whole thing just went away then. But it hasn't gone away for people in Northern Ireland because we have increased costs. We have reduced choice in terms of goods. And it is causing a lot of problems in terms of um, Stormont, the process that happens there of balance, the fact that we take rules from Europe but have absolutely no say in those rules. Uh, I mean, democracy, the very basic thing of actually voting for the rules that impact on you isn't there anymore. So it has to be dealt with and I can see no better time to do it than now but uh, obviously government think otherwise. Now, I've just got a few final questions. First is, when we think of the legacy of that Brexit period mm. um, and it going up to the protocol today, do you, do you think the agreement Boris Johnson eventually went for is the main reason you're no longer DUP leader today? Oh, who knows? <laughs> it's probably, it's certainly one of the reasons. I think COVID also played a role insofar as we weren't meeting together and having conversations in a meaningful way at party leader to MLA members and I think people felt remote from me and you know we couldn't come together in a way that was meaningful so there are probably and obviously other people's ambitions I think really played a role in in my downfall as well let's be honest but you know I have always said and I always used to say this to my close colleagues you know when it's time for me to go I will go I'm not going to hang on by my fingernails and so I took the decision not just to go as party leader but to go completely from local politics in Northern Ireland and to do something different with my life I'm 51 now it's a good time to perhaps change tact and so I have no regrets about being involved in local politics, none whatsoever. I think we did a lot of good things in Northern Ireland, but it's time to do something different. Do you think it's different for a woman in frontline politics to a man? I think the DP and also at times the Tory party can be seen as a bit of a you know a male-heavy uh, group. And I wanted, perhaps you don't, but what's your experience of it? Well, I think that's right. And unionism... There's very few women that that were coming through before me and thankfully now there's more women coming through at council level and MLA level and I, I really support that because we do need to have a balance between uh, the different uh, genders. I think that's really important. But I mean, it was, it was tough, but a really enjoyable time for me. Women do get a tough time. We do get more tension about how we look, 
our hair and what we're wearing. And, you know, you can be a man and turn up in the same suit every day and nobody passes any remarks. You know, if I turned up in the same dress every day, of course, everybody would be commenting on it. So you do get more attention. I have three children. I take my role as a mother very seriously. So obviously that had to be balanced as well. But as I have often said, it's no different from any other professional woman who has children. I mean, all women have to balance and all women have to juggle. But I was, I suppose, near the end, I was concerned about the impact it was having on my family in terms of the abuse and things like that. Because it's not nice when you're... um, 20-year-old daughter is having to see abuse about her mother and how she looks and she'd be better dead and, you know, all this sort of stuff, you know. It's tough on families of politicians, I think, because they don't choose to be involved in politics. Their mother has decided to go and, and be a politician. So there is that end of things. So there is an element of guilt around that. Now, you mentioned your work now. I mean, you've got your weekly slot on GB News. Yeah. Which is later today on the day of our recording. <laughs> and you also mentioned the work on the union. Yeah. On unionism. On that, I mean, what do you what do you think is going to be the way to... You spoke about people's talking more about this. Yes. And not just letting the other side have the conversation. Yeah. But do you think it's also about moving away from party politics, which yeah perhaps can feel as though to some people it's not progressive in the way that they want it to be and things like that well i'm involved now in with a group of people and we're looking at how we can make the union relevant to people's everyday lives uh, and to break it down for people so that they understand that the nhs is as a result of being within the united kingdom that our welfare system comes as a benefit of being part of the UK, uh, your education, all of the things that we take for granted. Nobody talks about the fact that that's because we're in the United Kingdom. So it's about moving away from party politics and into a more open conversation about the union and, and why it's a good thing and why we need to protect it. Do you think, uh, you talked about reporting often not feeling you know, so accurate. Yeah. And for example, I mean, there's been a lot about the DP and, you know, people write it up as an anti-gay political party. Mm. I know you've clarified that that is not how what your position is. So what do you think is the biggest misconception about you? I mean, I think people... <laughs> I hadn't realised this until not very recently, but quite recently, that I'm a very scary person. <laughs> and uh, I have met some quite formidable men and, and they're sort of, oh, it's good to meet you. And they're sort of scared of me. And I, what is this all about? <laughs> but I, I think the persona of a unionist politician in Northern Ireland is that often we're on the screens in, on, on the UK mainland when things are tough. So people have a very defined view of me and that I'm a scary, tough person, but I'm not really. I'm a pussycat. So the last question is one we ask everyone on this podcast, which is just what is the worst advice you've ever been given? Well, it's, it's been a long career and I've had a lot of advice, of advice given to me by various people. Some of it I've taken, some of it I haven't. I tend to think that all my decisions are my own decisions, to be frank, regardless of advice. But I, I mean, I do recall a civil servant once saying to me, because they were obviously waiting on a paper that I hadn't read and I wanted to read it on the way home in the car, and just sign it, just sign it. I said, no, I'm not just signing it, I'm taking it home. <laughs> so uh, I didn't take that advice and I think I'm, I'm pretty glad I did. So do your homework. Thank you, Arlene. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.